Our passage today is we continue our summer series of the final word is chapter four. Next week, chapter five. Now, these two chapters are not a change in the message flow or the chain of the message. They are very connected to it. We'll hear about that as I go on. But I'm going to read chapter 4, but before that I'm also going to read from chapter 1, verse 3, as the preamble to what we're going to read today. Chapter 3 says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and they heed the things which are written in it, and that is amen to that. Reading and hearing the prophecy has its own blessing, and so I trust that is our portion this morning. Then to chapter 4. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the Spirit. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne, and he was like, he was He who was sitting was like jasper stone and a sardis in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon those thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes and golden crowns on their heads. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion. The second creature like a, an ox. And the third creature had the face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. And they say, Worthy are you, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and because of your will they exist. And they were created. Amen. <laughs> that's, that's good stuff. Somebody give me a bigger amen. amen. Ah, that's for us. Look around. It's beautiful in here, isn't it? I mean, and then in the sanctuary, and if you are new, you haven't seen that, you have to go. But all week long, we get people who come in, and they, they drive by, and they pull in, and they go, Ah, oh, see, this place is so beautiful. You know, 
what we have as far as some of our features of worship, some of the architecture of our church, and some of the artistic touches that are part of who we are and what we do come directly from this book of the Revelation, chapter 4. The stained glass is from the idea of all of the colors that are in the throne room. The clergy with their white robes. We're not wearing white robes. But many churches, clergy wear black robes or other colored. But this is where they get it from. Some traditions of, uh, of churches have all of the elders that sit around or behind the pulpit. Have you ever seen that? You ever seen that on TV? Guy gets up front, all the guys in behind him. Oh, amen, amen. My, my, my. God bless you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's where this comes from. For us, in the center comes the word. As if we were in heaven. Now, there will be no thunder and lightning shooting out from this pulpit this morning. Maybe a little hot air. Look, there's a lot in this passage, these four chapters that we've read already that are just mind-boggling. And some of the things that we've read, we go, what? What? Huh? Trying to imagine what it is. Hearing it going, I believe it, but I have no clue what it means. Well, I think we should try at least some of the things today. Because that's our portion for the rest of our lives. However many days you have left in your life, you have the opportunity to learn a little bit. Now I've heard if you spend 15 minutes per day for one year, 15 minutes searching out one subject, by the end of that year, you are an expert. And so you could spend... 15 minutes per day doing some things. But let me just highlight a few things, some of which we've already encountered, some of which are from today's passage. But you remember where it says, and to the angel of the church of Sardis, and to the angel of the church of Ephesus, it's not meaning there's this guardian angel with wings that they're giving the message to. It just means messenger, angelos, the word from which we get our word angel. Angelos, it's transliterated. It just, it means messenger. And in those days, a messenger would bring the word and read the word. John, write these words, give it to the messenger that's going to that church and read those words. It's a messenger. We heard a lot about the number seven. The number seven occurs in the book of Revelation far more than any other book of, in Scripture, 54 times in this one book. The number seven represents completion fullness, perfection. There were seven churches in, in this region in Asia. There were more than seven, but seven was used as a, as a number to indicate the totality of everything. The four living creatures, we read about that today. Mm, my, my, my. Full of eyes in front and behind. Well, and they're close to the throne and they've got eyes in front and got eyes behind and they've got eyes all over the place. Their closeness to the throne suggests importance and that they're uh, some of the most important of the created beings and even that they stand in some way for the whole of 
created beings. There's a rabbinic tradition suggesting that the mightiest among the birds is the eagle. The mightiest among the domestic animals is the ox. The mightiest of the wild beasts is the lion, and the mightiest of them all is the man. And those are the faces that are represented on this beast. Four beasts. So then these four forms suggest that whatever is swiftest, strongest, noblest, and wisest in all of animate nature are worshiping. And they represent, I'm suggesting to you, they represent all of creation who are continually before the throne, representing everything that God created in the heavens and the earth. Four of them representing the north and the south and the east and the west. And that all of it is before the throne, worshiping the divine majesty. The 24 elders. Now, some have thought that these must be some form of higher class of angels. But everywhere in scripture, elder is used of a man. And the number 24 is a multiple of 12. And so you had the 12 tribes of Israel from the 12 patriarchs. And in the New Testament, you have the 12 disciples. And you even have recorded in the New Testament that they were promised that they were, they were told that they would sit on 12 thrones. So 12, the number 12 from the Old Testament church, the number 12 from the New Testament church, you got 24 elders representing church of all ages and all times. But then to the number 24, we go back into the book of Chronicles and there were 24 classes of priests, divisions of priests and 24 divisions of singers in the temples. And so you bring these two images together, all of the elders of the church and all of the ministrations that go on in insofar as worship is concerned. And this is the picture. What we have is a presbytery in heaven worshiping God, representing the church of all ages, of all times, of all people, of all tongues. All of creation in a constant thrilling worship and adoration of the Father. Those are just a couple of things. I mean, we read farther in the book of Revelation. There's so much more that's mysterious and deep and hard to understand. We can go back into the first pages of Scripture in Genesis and Exodus and go, what does this mean? We can be unaware of the answer to many things in the Christian faith. We can. We ought not to remain that way. We ought to be pursuing knowledge. We ought to be daily seeking to grow in our grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may fail to understand some of the deeper truths, but we cannot be wrong. We cannot be in error about who Jesus is. Because this book is about Jesus and his work, who he is and what he has done. The person and the work of Jesus. And we're called to keep our eyes on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You know, if you go back and you read each of the letters to each of the churches, there's a little preamble of titles or descriptions or functions that are specifically about Jesus. And I'm going to read all of them collectively, cumulatively for you. Each one of those preambles, there was something about that title, something about that description of, of Jesus that was addressing what was going on in that church. And that can be difficult 
difficult to dig into. It's a beautiful study. I would commend it to you. But listen to this. It starts out, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and of Hades. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like burnished bronze, he who has the seven spirits of God and, and the seven stars, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. The Amen. The faithful and true witness. The beginning of the creation of God. These titles, descriptions, are the person and the work of Jesus. The Lord, the author and the perfecter of your faith. The whole of Revelation is about him and reminding the church of his preeminence. The revelation is what he has done and what he is doing and of how we have a relationship with him. And all of those churches, commended or not, criticized, challenged, confronted, it is because their loss of the preeminence and the identity of the person and working of Christ. It was an acknowledged thing, not a heart thing. They had grown distant from Jesus, and had they worshipped him in humble reliance, they would have remained faithful. Well, each of these preamble statements address aspects of the church that speak into the various afflictions of those churches, and they speak to us today. One of the great repeated words in this chapter, I didn't count it up, it's about seven, is the word throne. This spectacular scene is given in part to remind the church that the door to the throne is open. The declaration of the door and the announcement of his presence to the Laodicean church, the warnings that Jesus is standing at the door, that door is now open and it's come in. It's open for our, and that is an invitation for our prayers. Think of this, or remember this. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Anyone in that New Testament era who heard the throne, the door is open. The idea that we can enter up into his presence would be something they would understand. And it's something that we need to remember and understand ourselves. Prayer. We need to rejoice that there is a throne of grace because what a world this would be if it was only a throne of justice and of judgment. 
We need to remember that we need this privilege of coming before such a throne as we are sinful. Therefore, we need mercy and we're feeble. Therefore, we need grace. And I ask you to reinforce in your hearts how obvious then is the necessity of prayer. Every one of us, every man is a sinner, broken, darkened mind, rebellious heart, and should pray for pardon. And every man is weak and feeble and dependent. We should pray for grace. Prayer is that one divine mercy given to all of the people of God, whereby which we have access to God. It is a supernatural exercise. So meaningless it seems sometimes, and yet so purposeful. That place where we take the finite, go into the infinite. We take the temporal and join with the eternal. We take that which is flesh and enter into that which is spirit. That is the promise of God to all of us for what we can do. And we are told to come boldly. You don't even need to knock the doors open. Just walk right in and make Make your requests made known to God. Amen. So I want to give to you this morning seven prayers of perfection, of completion. Pray these prayers. If you don't know how to pray, write down what I say. Just the couple of words and begin. If it's been a while, get back there. If you don't believe, pray them and say, help me in my unbelief. The first prayer, the one that comes first, though, I'm going to bring last. So, next prayer. The second prayer, cleanse me. Psalm 52 reminds us that David cried out, the believer, the man after God's own heart, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. This is the prayer of the saved sinner still aware of his own sin. And while we do confess corporately together and we read something, you know, I just... I want you to understand some of the most powerful and sweet place that you will ever find in your Christian life is when you do your business with your God and humbly and with a troubled heart you say forgive me and cleanse me second prayer is teach me we got to know something we are to grow in the grace and favor and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The prayers of Scripture in Psalm 24 is to make me know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Show me something, Father. Open my eyes to see. Open my ears to hear. Instruct my heart. Deepen me. Give me something. Teach me. How about a third? Fill me with joy. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy. 
our joy gets stolen sometimes. Life can rob us of vitality. Scripture tells us in this life you will have trouble. There's trial and tribulation, and sometimes it just sucks the energy right out of us. And Scripture says, come on in. The door's open. Tell him about it. He'll comfort you. He'll fill you. Sometimes joy is stolen from us because we don't confess our sin. David pled, restore unto me the joy of my salvation and uphold me in it. Peter writes to all of his people. In the two letters of Peter, those people were suffering gravely. They had been snatched out of Rome and exiled, taken to a faraway land. The people of that land didn't want them around. They were hurting and suffering. And he said, although you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. These seem to suggest that sometimes we need to sit down and find the joy and remember the joy and understand where it comes from and understand that we are eternal beings, not finite creatures stuck with the misery of all of these things. We get to the end of the book of Revelation. It is the end of time where there's no night there. There's no darkness. There's no tears. There's no sadness. There's no sorrow. Death will have been conquered. But while we live in this life, we walk in the valley of the shadow of death. It's part of who we are. It's part of what we do. But God says there's still joy in these things, and it's yours. Five. Strengthen me. You know that Paul prays for believers for them to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The inner man is the the sum of all of who we are by knowledge and experience. And sometimes we don't have enough knowledge. Sometimes our experiences aren't that good. And that's who we are inside. And Paul prays that we'll be strengthened in that inner person. And you can pray it. Lord, I'm weak. I need to be strengthened. Lord, help me. I waver. Oh, Lord, strengthen me. Draw a sixth prayer. uh, Seventh, actually, but I'm going to go back to number one here in a second. Draw near to me. This prayer is built on the promises and the assurances in Scripture. That even if I am walking through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And then that great promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What is drawing near to God? Prayer. It's prayer. Now these things, these prayers aren't hard. 
Cleanse me, teach me, fill me with joy, use me, strengthen me, draw near to me. But none of, you can't pray any of those until you have in fact prayed this first one. Number one, save me. Save me. People came to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Men, brilliant men, the rulers of Israel came to the Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? If you declare with your mouth, it's a prayer, that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the number one prayer because all of the others are contingent on it. God does not answer prayers of people who are not his. My children I give my gifts to. Many believe that coming to Jesus means that their lives are now going to be fixed. It's not that they don't acknowledge the death and resurrection of Jesus or even have some idea of sin. But most of the time, the belief is that sin is a problem that's messed up my opportunities and messed up my relationship. And it gets away and gets into the way of my deepest satisfaction. And if I come to Jesus, he's going to fix that. He's the one who will make a difference in my life. And he'll bring love and harmony to all that I'm going to do. Come to Jesus and he'll make your life happy. He'll take away the problems. Well... Of course, coming to Jesus has an impact on you because you don't come to Jesus unless he first draws you to him. And when you come to Jesus, he makes you who are dead in your trespasses and sins alive in Christ. And all of this stuff begins to flow. And there is a fountain filled with love that blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins that washes your sin away and makes you not ripe for a good life, but right with God. Some years ago, I met a man in South Sudan who had been taken captive by the Northern Islamic Front. And for three years, he was their captive and he was beaten and mistreated. He was used as a human shield at times, barely alive from starvation and thirst and abuse and exposure. And in spite of all this, he preached Jesus to them for which he was punished. Yet it didn't stop him. Eventually, his captors feared him as a holy one. And they began to treat him better, trying to keep him alive. And eventually, they set him free because they feared harm would come to them if harm had came to him. I talked with him and spoke to him, asked how he was able to endure some of the hardships. I won't describe those. And he said they could only do so much to him they could, they could do so much to him, but they could not stop him from praying. He said his praying gave him strength to overcome his suffering because Jesus had suffered so much more. He said his praying sustained him even though he had lost everything because he knew Jesus had saved him and had provided for him eternal life and his treasures were in heaven. 
And if he were to leave this world, so much the better. Not fatalistically so, but just recognizing this world is not his home. He's just passing through. And he said that even though he was so alone and isolated and on the verge of death so often, he said, I wasn't alone. He said, prayer gave him delivery out of misery into the very presence of God. And he would stay there for as long as he could. I prayed my way through everything. Now, it's not always the best to use the worst-case scenario. But those miserable, painful, suffering places did not stop him from fixing his eyes on Jesus, from walking boldly into the presence of the throne room of God. And I'm, I'm telling you, my friends, keep your eyes on Jesus. Pray Pray those prayers for your life to radically change. You know, be careful what you pray for or be careful what you ask for. I'm telling you. But pray them with an earnest heart. And by the way, uh, this man's name, it's a biblical name as often we find in Africa, everybody's named Adam or John or Matthew or Jedediah or something His name was a biblical name, as so often is the case. His name was Repent. Repent. 